Welcome to the Conservation Today Show. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today, I am going to speak with Samantha Kropp, grassroots organizer with Cascadia Wildlands. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do with Cascadia Wildlands? Hi, thanks for having me, Francis. Um, I am currently the grassroots organizer with Cascadia Wildlands, and we are a small nonprofit based in Eugene, but doing work throughout the Cascadian bioregion. And my work is specifically focused on engaging with the public, education, advocacy, and grassroots action around our issues. Um, As an organization, we kind of focus on three main umbrellas. The first one is forest and watershed protection. The second is combating climate change. And the third is protecting endangered um, and threatened species in the bioregion. So we have a team of five of us, two of who are lawyers, who do um, a lot of administrative challenges, comments to agencies, and litigation. And my job is to really bring our issues to the public. And so I do a lot of community outreach and education, a lot of um, exploration and visiting the places that we're fighting to defend, also lobbying and working with representatives um, and pushing our issues in front of representatives um, and kind of the whole gamut of the grassroots spectrum of tactics. In the uh, description under the podcast, I'm going to put a link to Cascadia Wildlands so people can get more information there. Awesome. Now, one of the things you do is uh, look at uh, federal timber sales, uh, BLM, Forest Service sales. Is there anything interesting as far as the federal timber sales going on in Douglas County in the Umpqua Valleys? Definitely. Um, So we, as you said, we monitor federal lands timber sales across the state of Oregon on the west coast, uh, on the west side of the Cascades. And um, there's a number of things that have been happening in the past couple of years that have been changing um, in somewhat alarming ways. Um, and a lot of that's due to the adoption of the 2016 Resource Management Plan from the Bureau of Land Management. Um, and they're, they're the agency that lately we've been the most focused on because the sales that we're seeing come out of that agency are um, becoming more and more destructive and um, pulling more and more trees from the forest. Um, So once that management plan was passed in 2016, it essentially mandated an increase in logging on BLM lands by 37%. Um, It also did a lot of things to um, undermine the protections that environmentalists fought for for so long in the Northwest Forest Plan. Um, by eliminating streamside buffers, eliminating surveys and buffers for imperiled species, and totally disregarding climate change and carbon storage, and basically opening up more mature old growth for these really archaic clear-cutting practices that everyone knows are destructive to the land base and the watersheds and the species and to our communities. Um, and so specifically in Southern Oregon, um, we have been monitoring a few different Bureau of Land Management timber sales, um, one of which is has been getting a lot of attention lately. Um, it's called the Umpqua Sweets timber sale. 
And, and this what, is uh, this is from the Roseburg BLM, right? Yeah. So Roseburg BLM is the Umqua Suites, and then they also just released the new one called the Blue and Gold Timber Sale. Wow. So Umqua Suites is like 2,000 acres of commercial logging, um, and it's just just east of Roseburg. And there's actually it's, it's right up and around the North Umqua River, which is what, one of the reasons why it's gaining so much attention. Right. It's up around um, near the Swiftwater Park area of Roseburg BLM on the North Umqua River and then up Rock Creek, up in the area of the Lone Rock Timber New Road that we fought so hard a couple years ago. Well, we lost. They built the new road through BLM old growth. And now the rest of that old growth, the BLM wants to cut down in the Umqua Suites timber sale, I understand. Yeah, it feels really sneaky um, that the road was punched through in order to accommodate Lone Rock logging, but now it just so happens that the Bureau of Land Management gets to use the same road for more logging of old growth. Lone Rock Timber didn't even use that road for their own logging. All they did was log the road, a very wide road, and they got to purchase that timber at a negotiated price, and then the end of the road ended on their land, but they didn't do any logging. They just built the road. And now Roseburg BLM gets to use that road to log the rest of the unit. And road construction in general is a big issue in the Umqua Suites timber sale. I know that, Francis, you've been out there a lot looking at different units in the sale, and so have a, a lot of our volunteer field surveyors. And one of the things that we keep finding is that a number of these proposed roads that show up on the map just happen to go through stands of really large, majestic old growth. Because the BLM themselves and the new management plan, they aren't allowed to cut down a tree that's over a certain age and over 40 inches in diameter. But they can if, the, if, if it's a road. Yes, unless they're building a road. Yeah. Yeah. So the Umpqua sale has been a large focus of ours. The roads have been an issue. Um, Gabe and I just, Gabe is one of the lawyers on Cascadia staff. We went out there to do a visit to some of the units recently and found some really, um, giant 50 diameter plus ponderosa and sugar pine right in the middle of a proposed road. I bet you have pictures that I could give a link to under the podcast. We do definitely have pictures, and that would be really great to see those pictures because one of, I mean, one of the other amazing things that's going on in this timber sale, it's not just the old trees that are there, but um, there's a riverside unit that is just right next to a spot on the North Umpqua that is actually within the Wild and Scenic River designation. Um, and then that designation ends and the river continues and they have a, a, a unit along the river that they're slating for commercial thinning, um, which is, goes right along the river. And, and just looking at that, it looks so obvious why that would be a bad idea um, for recreation and for the river itself. That's a place the locals here know is the Narrows. If you're standing on the North Umqua Highway looking across the river at the Narrows, the other side of the river is what is a logging unit being proposed. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. Another amazing thing inside of this timber sale that was actually, um, it, it seems to be something that a lot of locals also know about, um, but perhaps the Bureau of Land Management wasn't aware of, 
is a giant um, prehistoric-looking rock arch formation in the middle of one of the timber sale units, um, which is just, again, a, an incredible geological feature and also something that it doesn't really make any sense to be disturbing or creating disturbance around. And these are all what BLM calls regeneration harvest, right? Which is their word for almost a clear cut. This is one of the most incredibly frustrating things about dealing with Bureau of Land Management timber sales under the new resource management plan is that they're not considering climate impacts. They're not considering impacts for fire safety, which is a big concern of ours because there are people who live right near, right next to this timber sale. They're not really considering ecological health or watershed health. They're only analyzing projects for for production. Yes, and, and I understand BLM believes in the science that says once you clear-cut an area and replant it, it's at greater risk of a forest fire. And they're going to put this right next to people's homes. A greater risk of a forest fire doesn't seem right. Not at all. And we're seeing this more and more is this kind of like siloing of our mentality. I mean, at the same time, the BLM in their proposal is planning to do fire reduction along the roadways, which makes sense. Um, but then they're going to increase fire hazard next to people's homes. And I think that it goes back to that kind of double speak, which really reveals that the, the point of this project is timber production. It's not about considering community health or ecosystem health, like I said. It's just about pulling as much timber as is legally allowed from the landscape. One thing that I discovered when I first started working with Cascadia is just how they're how selective they are, too, with the trees that get to stay on the landscape. Um, I remember going to this timber sale that was in the Glide area called Horse Prairie, and it was a, it was a sale that um, had burned completely, and they were proposing to salvage harvest, or a.k.a. clear cut. That's in the Riddle area, right? Yeah, oh, that was in the Riddle, you're right. That was in the Riddle area um, along Cow Creek. Was yes. That the, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we went up there and I realized we, we were doing a, a team field check, um, and we realized that a lot of, a ton of these giant old madrones had been hacked into at their base and squirted with poison to be killed because they aren't considered valuable, um, timber species. And so we asked the BLM about this, and sure enough, this is something that happens a lot, is just undesirable species don't, don't even get logged, and they just get hacked and poisoned. And that poison obviously doesn't just stay in the tree. It goes into the landscape, too. That is just shocking to me. That That is shocking because, you know, if you cut down a madrone, it will re-sprout and come back. However, if you hack into it and put poison into its roots, it can never come back. It's totally killed it. I think one of the um, one of the things that really makes Cascadia's work interesting, unique, and effective around our timber timber sale monitoring is that alongside, so we have our lawyers who go through all of the proposals that come up online and basically just comb through everything that comes out on public lands and decides what is a priority for us. Um, and what, what the biggest threats are. But we also have this 
really amazing group of volunteer community surveyors who will actually go and visit the places that are being proposed for the cut, and they compare what's written in timber sale proposals with what actually is on the ground. And so that's when we're finding all this cool stuff, like people are finding rock arches, and, oh, there's a riverside unit, and these really amazing old trees and unmarked waterways and really special old-growth groves and species habitat that might not show up in the paper of the project, but are definitely there and should get a voice. Um, and so that has been really our focus on not just the Southern Oregon timber sales, but all over the state is just growing our numbers of volunteer surveyors and really putting boots on the ground in every single acre of the lands that are being proposed to, for management to really see what's happening and find all these special places. Now, if one of our listeners here in Douglas County would like to become a volunteer, I'll also put a link down in the description and how they can uh, do that. Awesome. So, yeah, if they want to look at some of our uh, Douglas County timber sales. Yeah, and we're, our, our volunteer field checking team is called, our volunteer team actually is called the Wildcat team, the Cascadia Action Team, and we have a bunch of different working groups that kind of take on a lot of different tactics for each of our campaigns, but one of those groups is our field checking group, and we more and more have trips going all the time from um, Southern Oregon to the North Cascades, and we definitely could use more people to come see these places with us. Now, you also mentioned another yeah. sale that Roseburg BLM, did they just release the environmental assessment, or was it scoping, or what's the name of the other sale you talked about? The Blue and Gold. you got to love these names. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could name them. Um, the Blue and Gold Timber Sale is another one out of Roseburg, Bureau of Land Management. Um, this one is northwest of Roseburg. It's another couple thousand acres in stands that are as old as 140 years old um, and as young as 40, so probably another typical, some older native stands, some younger tree farms. Um, and it just opened the scoping period, which closes January 6th, so... It's really new. As usual, we have, like, hardly any maps on it at all, um, but it's something that we're going to be monitoring closely, especially when we see stands that are 140 years old. That always raises some alerts. When they say scoping comment end, scoping actually never has to end. You can put in comments up until the time the environmental assessment is released. It's best to put in comments as early as possible so they can be considered in the environmental assessments, but... Scoping ending doesn't really happen. I mean, BLM likes to say it happens, but people can comment any time they want to BLM on anything. Where is the Blue and Gold Timber Sale located at in Douglas County? Maybe like just west of Sutherland. Wow, I know. That's a ridge up there that has some really beautiful BLM force on it. So I I look forward to going up and, and checking some of that stuff out, too. Yeah, and you were saying, too, that the scoping period never closes, and I was saying that I feel like that's a really important point, that a lot of people feel like communication or communicating with the DLM is really this kind of difficult or elite process, 
that only people who really know what they're doing can do. And I think it's so important that people realize that you can just send them an email whenever and ask questions, especially if you're going to see a place or if you're a community member who is near sale. They, it's their job to respond to our questions and to provide us with maps and to provide us with the documentation that they have. And it doesn't need to be a fancy email or a tactical comment, just getting in touch with them and letting them know that Cascadians are watching and they care is super important. Yes. Have you gotten maps of the, of the blue and gold timber sale yet from BLM? We have one area, we have one project area map. And that's what I just pulled up so I could see that it's along the 138 and the Little Canyon Creek area and Yellow Creek area. Yes. Yellow Creek area. So it's kind of overwhelming. There's just a lot of Bureau of Land Management timber sales. They're really more and more they're doing as they're proposing to do as much harvest as possible on the lands that are set aside for timber harvest. They're not thinking about other um other value systems. They're not certainly not thinking about climate change the way that they should be. Um and that's something that we've been kind of commenting on and, and educating on and harping on more and more is that given what these forests are, these Pacific Northwest, these coastal forests, and given the fact that science now agrees that these are among the best in the world for carbon sequestration, our management bodies need to be considering carbon and need to be considering climate change in their management policies. And so that's one thing that the BLM is certainly not doing as we see them proposing to do some serious canopy, taking down serious canopy on old growth. Um, and that's one thing that we really as a community should be pushing for more and more is that these forests, some forests, um, as a recent OSU article said, just shouldn't be cut. They just need to be left to sequester carbon. And that's those old native forests that are here out in the coast range. Now, the other um, thing Cascadia Wildlands has been doing is also looking at the state of Oregon forests and what's going on with the state of Oregon forests, and in particular, that would be the Elliott State Forest, and that is located in the coast range near Reedsport, between Reedsport and Loon Lake. Yeah. What's going on with the Elliott State Forest? What's happening there? Well, a lot is going on with the Elliott right now, um, and it's kind of in a, a limbo state. So just um, a little history. In 2016, the Oregon State Land Board voted to maintain the public status of the Elliott um, as it was almost sold to a timber company um, and privatized. And just a little bit more history on that. I mean, Cascadia Wildlands had been complaining about those Elliott State Forest timber sales um, impacting marble murrelet habitat and brought the state of Oregon to court saying that the state of Oregon cannot harm this endangered species. And Cascadia Wildlands won that lawsuit around 2013 and so the state of Oregon said, well, if we can't take endangered species, we'll just sell it. And then they offered to sell it to Lone Rock Timber, one of the most uh, egregious timber companies around. 
And as you say, in 2016, then, the state of Oregon changed their mind. We were really glad about that. Yeah, that was a huge statewide celebration. The Elliott State Forest, over the past uh, handful of years, has really become something that has went from a, a, an obscure place that very few people knew about to something that has, has been widely recognized by Oregonians as a state treasure. Um, it is not only incredible for pockets of native old growth that are incredible for sequestering carbon, but also just for, for habitat and for incredible social recreation opportunities. Um, so that was a huge celebration in 2016 when we, we won. We, but it also created a problem that needed and still needs an answer. And that problem is a huge sum of money that needs to be paid in order to, in order to cover the cost that would have gone to Lone Rock or that would have come from Lone Rock in purchasing the Elliott. Um, and that would have come from timber production out of the Elliott. So now that the public has, it's remaining in the public hands, we now have to, there's now the question of where is that money going to come from? And so for the past few years, um, the state land board with Governor Brown at the head have been trying to solve that problem and figure out how the Elliott State Forest can stay published but also generate the money so that we can split it off from the common school fund. Um, and that has been the common school fund relationship with the Elliott has been an incredibly devastating and destructive relationship and has essentially pit the school kids against the health of the forest by tying timber production to funding local schools. And so we're trying to separate that connection and have both happy school children and healthy forests, but the money situation has to be addressed. And so that is where we're at right now, and that's why currently Oregon State University is kind of the foremost organization that has come up with a proposal to come up with this money. Um, and Oregon State University's proposal has been to basically manage the Elliott as another research forest um, and and bring it into their their program of, of uh, essentially doing research on state lands across Oregon, um, which is a problem, as many of us raises some questions, as many of us know. And why is that a problem to do research? It sounds nice, um, but for those of us who've been watching Oregon State University's management on their research forest, we know that unfortunately they have a history of clear cutting under the guise of forest research. So just this past year, Oregon State University came under a lot of heat from the public because it was discovered that they had clear-cut a tract of old forests in their McDonald Dunn research forest, um, including a tree that was over 400 years old. 
I have some pictures of the Oregon State University research force, three of their different research force. And so if folks want to actually see what kind of research Oregon State University does, uh, that link will be in the description of the podcast below. And basically, it's a bunch of clear-cutting. I mean, I don't know why they have to research clear-cutting so much. <laughs> yeah, they definitely don't. And that's why we keep saying that anything that's promoting logging more under the guise of restoration, we need to just call that what it is. It's, it's industry. It's timber industry. It's driven by the desire for timber revenue, not for research and learning and education. And so we've been very skeptical. The public has been very skeptical. People who have been defending the Elliott are concerned that Oregon State University is going to try to do the same things in the Elliott State Forest that they've done in their other, quote, research forest. Um, and currently we're in this limbo phase where we are waiting for a concrete proposal to really come out of Oregon State University's forestry department. They've given us very vague proposals that seem to allow for logging and commercial logging in old native stands. While they're giving a lot of trip service to conservation and considering what um, carbon sequestration could look like and carbon reserves could look like, they're also they have there have been no sideboards created yet to protect old species um, and, and an old forest and that's a big concern for us. Right. I mean, obviously, we really need to research how to protect our climate from further damage from climate change. And as you mentioned earlier, especially the forests in the coast range have the potential to store more carbon than virtually any other place in the world. So, yes, that's where we need research is how to save ourselves, not how to do more clear-cutting. That's so true. And... That's what a lot of people said just last month when Oregon State University presented their still-forming proposal to the state land board in Salem. A number of community members, I think over 30 community members, testified, including you, Francis, um, yeah. and including Josh Laughlin, uh, Cascadia Wildlands Executive Director, and including some um, Oregon State University alma mater professors and scientists um, and folks who really know what they're talking about when they're talking about ecological forest management. And it seemed that the consensus was actually really clear that people, scientists, conservationists, and, and um, Oregonians, community members alike, are concerned about carbon sequestration, and we're really concerned about climate change. And I think that's exactly right, that Oregon State University, their, their research question is concerning. They're asking the question of how can they balance the values of timber production with recreation and carbon and species. And they're not asking the right question, which I think is what you said, is how can we, how can we manage forests for maximum carbon sequestration in an era of climate change? The trouble is, is that since we don't tax carbon, that they can't make the money they need to make to buy the Elliott out from under the common school fund obligations. Um, 
now, just real quickly here, the common school fund obligations that the the when Oregon became a state, the federal government gave Oregon some land in order to fund public education. So that's what we mean by the common school fund lands. And we need to buy the Elliott out from that so that the school fund has that money, but the Elliott is we're no longer required to to generate revenue from logging in the Elliott for the Common School Fund. What does the future look like in getting the money? Governor Brown said the state would pay for $100 million and that we need another $100 million to buy out the Elliott. Where is that money going to come from if we don't want them to clear-cut it? Yeah, I think that's where we have to get creative. That's the big question. I mean, this is not only a question that pertains to the Elliott, but it pertains to a lot of Oregon, is how, how can we fund our local communities moving away from the destructive practices that have landed us in this disastrous position in the first place? And in the case of the Elliott, I think that there's some, there could be some creative thinking done around um, turning it into a carbon reserve. There's been some conversation about... Um, carbon banking and being able to generate funds from just the incredible capacity of these forests to sequester carbon. There's also a lot of opportunities to explore earning um, money from recreation opportunities. And as I said before, the Elliott has become more and more recognized as a world-class, world-class recreation um, location. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there could be we're, and Cascadia Wildlands isn't against logging, period. You know, we, we recognize that logging is an industry that has existed and will exist here. Um, but there are plenty of examples of ecologically sound forest management. And we would say that no logging should happen in the native forest over 80 years old. And if uh, timber revenue is going to be generated, it should be happening in the young, dense plantations that could actually use and benefit from ecological thinning. Um, so I think it has to be, there's no, there's no silver bullet, there's no one answer, but there's certainly room for creativity, and that's what's needed not just for the Elliott, but for the entire state of Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. So what's the next step in the Elliott? What's going to happen next? Right now, it's a big waiting game. We have been told that we will receive an actual proposal from Oregon State University in the fall of 2020. And so until then, um, we are waiting to hear more specifics about what they're proposing. We are really trying to build, um, to build grassroots voices and capacity around our, our important messaging points that we seem to all agree on, which is our values of protecting old forests and watersheds and species, and putting pressure on Oregon State University to let them know that we are indeed watching them um, and that they have a lot of proving to the community to do that if they took over the Elliott, they would be doing what's right for that place. It's also where, you know, uh, the practice of field checking is really comes into play again, is that if if Lone Rock were to take the land, no one would be able to access it. It would be private, and we would never be able to see what they're doing. But 
as long as it stays in public hands, we can always go and see what's happening on public lands. And that's how the travesty at the McDonald's Dunn Research Forest was discovered, was just someone went and saw. Um, but it, as long as the alley stays in public hands and there are people who are willing to be watchdogs of that space, then I think we have a much better chance of protecting it than if it gets sold off to a private timber company. We're going to take a break. We have been talking with Samantha Kropp from Cascadia Wildlands. This is Conservation Today, and we'll be right back. This is Conservation Today, and we are back from our break. We are talking with Samantha Kropp from Cascadia Wildlands. We have been talking about the Elliott State Forest, but Cascadia Wildlands does a lot of things. Let's go on. What else has Cascadia Wildlands been working on? You all are working <laughs> on a lot. I'm sure much more. <laughs> there is always more. Um, yeah, alongside our work in forest defense, we have been um, working hard as part of a really incredible and growing coalition um, that has formed to, to halt the Jordan Cove frac gas pipeline and LNG terminal, um, which I know has been talked a bit about on this radio show. Um, so we've been deeply invested in that work. The Jordan Cove Project is a Canadian corporation called Pembina who wants to ship perhaps all Canadian frac gas. They want to ship their gas to Asia, and so they need to come through Oregon and kind of use Oregon as their stepping stone to get from Canada to Asia. Hard to believe that we're still even thinking about doing this big fossil fuel project, putting in the infrastructure so we can burn fossil fuels for the next 50 years. It really is hard to believe, especially against the backdrop of um, our governor committing to climate goals in the state of Oregon and also committing to decommissioning Oregon's current largest climate polluter, the Boardman Coal Plant, um, by next year. And so there are clear directives, um, or at least there's lift service to clear directives coming from the governor's office all the way down, and yet we're still seeing this proposal. We're still seeing the governor remain silent on the Jordan Cove pipeline and this proposal move forward. And that's really been one of the largest focuses of the beautiful coalition that has formed to stop this pipeline has been getting the governor, who is really the supreme power over all of the state agencies, to do something, to stand with Oregonians like other governors have done. And, um, and to, to do something to stop the pipeline. Because we certainly can't depend on the Trump administration to say no to this pipeline. So the state of Oregon is really our best hope. Yeah, and right now the Trump administration is actually doing everything that it can to make sure that the state of Oregon can't say no um, and to try and undermine state rights. Which is even more so why we really need Governor Brown to stand up and take a stance and not allow our rights to be trampled over. Um, just this year, the Trump administration announced that it's trying to gut the Clean Water Act in order to essentially make it more difficult for states to deny permits for fossil fuel pipelines. 
Um, and so that directly applies to Jordan Cove because also this year, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality did deny a permit for Jordan Cove, which was a huge victory for our coalition. But the federal government is currently preparing to approve the a major permit for the pipeline um, in February. And so what we're seeing is this real push from the Trump administration to force this pipeline through Oregon against the will of Oregonians um, and against our only state agency that's made a decision yet. Now, that permit that the federal government is expecting to issue sometime after February 13th, that's the permit that allows the taking of private land with eminent domain. And I understand that there's over 90 landowners. You see, this pipeline is 230 miles long going from near Klamath Falls to Coos Bay. So it's got to go through a lot of private land. And there's a lot of people who don't want a huge, high-pressure, flammable pipeline buried on their property, and they haven't agreed to it. So... I think there's over 90 landowners so far that have not agreed to this. And so the the permit that the federal government is, is getting ready to issue would allow the Canadian corporation to take that land with eminent domain. A Canadian corporation to take U.S. citizens' land with eminent domain. That's what the Trump administration is getting ready to issue, we fear, And in 2016, like you said, the exact same permit was denied because it was found that uh, it's not in the public interest. This pipeline isn't in the public interest to warrant being able to use eminent domain, which is really only legally allowed if it can be deemed in the best interest of the public. So, yeah, that is a a huge concern um, that we're seeing. We are worried that the Trump administration's Federal Energy Regulatory Commission will just greenlight this permit. And even though one of our state agencies denied a permit and another one has yet to make a decision, we could see, once the federal government approves the permit, we could see construction beginning, at least the clearing of trees along the pipeline route, not far after that. That's what's really uh, scary is that um, if the Trump administration says, okay, we're going to let you build this on the condition that you get your state permits, which they haven't gotten, that still means that they can do pre-construction activities. They can't construct a pipeline, but cutting trees is not considered construction. So especially on private land, that's where they can go for it to start to cut the trees, and they can do eminent domain on all those landowners who said no, even before they get all their permits in place, they can start to cut the trees on their property. Yeah, it's really terrifying, um, and this is where really community action comes into play. We so far have been, the coalition has been incredibly successful in elevating the Jordan Cove pipeline so much in the public eye, also generating 
hundreds of thousands of comments to state agencies and federal agencies around these permits, and also getting support from federal representatives and state representatives alike for our coalition. Um, and so as the stakes get higher and the timeline for possible construction and tree felling nears, it's really key for our coalition to keep building momentum and energy, which I think is exactly what we have been doing. Well, that's why your job is so important. I mean, there's so many people in Oregon who are basically opposed to increased fossil fuel use in Oregon. This will be the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the state of Oregon. But yet, it's so complicated for each person to weigh in. There's so many roadblocks that are put in their way. It's really great that you have made it easier for people to express what they feel to the right agency at the right time. Yeah, and that's, that's to me, such an important thing also because it highlights an injustice in our system which is that those folks and those uh, non-human people who are most impacted by these projects often have the least amount of tools to advocate for themselves. And so mm-hmm. we're seeing people, like you mentioned, so many of these landowners in the path of the pipeline in Southern Oregon are rural landowners who may have never dealt with this confusing, sticky bureaucracy before, or might not have access to the Internet on a regular basis from which to download these hundreds of pages of project documents that come out on a regular basis. Um, It's also, you know, impacting tribal territory and against the history of tribal removal from traditional lands and destroying the resources that tribes have relied on along this path of the pipeline. Um, And... You know, all of the species, too, the non-human, non-human animals who are unable to advocate for themselves along the path of the pipeline. Um, yeah, that's, you know, a great injustice of this process is that those who are impacted most often have the least voice. And so that has been a really big focus of our work with Cascadia is, and my work with Cascadia has been, like you said, to, to do our best to elevate those voices. Um, and also to make the process of participation less mystified and less confusing and to just put it into common human terms. And that goes with Jordan Cove and also with our work in forest sense is to just demystify what it means to be uh, a citizen or someone who is participating in the process, a community member who is engaged, and making it possible for people to voice their concerns and be heard. Yes, that's so important, and, and and especially for those non-English speaking wildlife that can't advocate for themselves. You know, this Jordan Cove project impacts 36 species so rare they're protected under the Endangered Species Act, including seven species of whales that will endure increased ship strikes from the from the proposed increase. I think it's 240 extra ships crossing their migration route every year. Yeah, especially when we have our federal, and this is where it ties back into forest defense, is the impact that this pipeline would have for forests and for watersheds. And we have our federal management bodies, the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service, essentially disregarding and throwing out their own management plan in order to accommodate 
this foreign fossil proposal. And so, yeah, the concerns for endangered species, protected species are paramount because not even those agencies responsible for protecting them are uh, doing their job. You know what really made me mad about this whole thing is the BLM, uh, is that the head BLM office forbade all BLM districts in the United States from asking for any mitigation for any damage to BLM lands. Normally, something like this, they have to clear cut through wildlife reserves, and they'll, BLM will ask for mitigation. Well, you have to buy other wildlife reserves elsewhere, for instance, you know. But the Trump administration forbade the BLM from asking for any mitigation for any damages. And because they couldn't mitigate, the BLM decided to change their forest plan. Their forest plan doesn't allow them to clear-cut streamside reserves and wildlife reserves, so they have to change their forest plan. And what they did was they decided to create a new reserve. It's called District Designated Reserve for the Pacific Connector Gas Pipeline. It will be a linear reserve, and BLM will manage it for the values, that's their word, for the values of the pipeline. Uh, between seven and 800 acres, our BLM is going to give to a foreign corporation so they can run a fossil fuel pro- project on our wildlife reserves. It would be almost comical. Like, to me, it belongs in some sort of comic villain strip that idea of a pipeline reserve managed for the values of the pipeline. Like, what is that? It's just ridiculous. It is so ridiculous. There was this really incredible public outcry at the Salem office a few weeks ago. Tell us about that. The one thing that has been consistent in our um, grassroots activism and action since the beginning um, of this new round of the Jordan Cove pipeline introduction has been continuous pressure being put on Governor Brown. Um, and as I mentioned before, this is because she is the head of all of the state agencies and she is really the voice of, Oregon, of Oregonians and is the one who can stand up and has the most power of any elected official to stop the pipeline, aside from Trump, who obviously we don't want to put any energy into. Um, So for a long time, we have been putting pressure on Governor Brown and doing so in various ways. Over the past two years, um, Cascadia Wildlands has been working specifically to show up at every single state land board hearing that the governor has hosted um, and made sure to comment on Jordan Cove, whether or not Jordan Cove was on the agenda. We showed up and spoke out, sometimes disrupting the meeting, sometimes participating in the comments but always letting Governor Brown know that we're listening. Over the past few years, we've been also escalating as a coalition. Um, And after earning a recent meeting with Governor Brown, where we brought important stakeholders from the coalition to meet with her, and she still refused to come out against the pipeline, a coalition organized a massive turnout during the few legislative days um, in November and turned out 500 people to the Oregon State Capitol building to rally against Jordan Cove and to call on Governor Brown to 
specifically and tell her that the time is now to come out against Sword and Coke. And so that was an incredibly beautiful turnout. Um, the, we did, we did a rally outside of the building with a number of really inspired stakeholder speakers. And then my favorite part of the afternoon was when all 500 people came into the halls of Congress and filled up the rotunda and filled up the stairways that lead up into the state legislative offices and sang together, We Have Got the Power. And, and the, song, the song was beautiful because it has great acoustics in that rotunda and we just sounded fabulous. Yeah, we drowned out their really horrible elevator jazz and we definitely, in that moment, we reminded Governor Brown who she worked for. And it was pretty powerful. Um, but that wasn't the end of that action. After all of the singing in the rotunda, a group of impacted landowners actually broke off and went and sat down in the governor's office and refused to move. And wow. they were joined by 75 others who joined them and sat in the governor's office all day and refused to move and sang and wrote letters and earned a ton of national media and even got a visit from Governor Brown sometime in the evening around 8 p.m. Um, and this action resulted in 21 of our comrades and our coalition members getting arrested and thrown in jail for demanding Governor Brown do something about the pipeline and refusing to leave her office until she does. Um, so it was a real escalation in the coalition's actions. It was a really inspiring action in the history of this movement. And despite the fact that Governor Brown continues to stay silent on the pipeline, I think, like I said before, that moment reminded her who she worked for and reminded her that she's not going to get off easy. We're not going to stop until she stops the pipeline. You know, I, I was actually in the room when she came and talked to us, and I I would expect her to at least support her constituents who are under the threat of imminent domain by a foreign corporation. But I didn't hear any support from her on that either. Yeah, she hasn't been incredibly communicative and supportive of pipeline resistors. One theme that we keep running into every time that we show up to state land board meetings and attempt to comment on the pipeline is that we're told we're not allowed and that there's space made for our input. There, um, she clearly doesn't, Governor Brown clearly is not valuing our stories and our opinions on the subject, and that's another one of our major complaints is that if you're, if you're going to entertain a fossil fuel project that has devastating consequences like these, then you better listen to your constituents who are impacted. Especially when it's that. going to be the the highest greenhouse gas polluter in the state of Oregon, more so than the Boardman coal plant. Yeah, as a self-described climate champion governor, you need to be doing something about this pipeline. And we're inspired by the growing coalition and the number of people uh, who are willing to put their bodies on the line to do something about this. Um, and we're also inspired by um, our some of our federal representatives who've actually taken a stance and and um, and come out against the pipeline. Um, most recently, federal representative Peter DeFazio actually took a stance against the pipeline after over a decade of community pressure for him to do that. 
Um, and I wonder if that had something to do with he has a running someone running against him now, Doyle Canning, who has been opposed mm-hmm. to the pipeline. So yeah, Doyle Canning has a big role in that. It really helps to have a more a more uh, community oriented leftist opponent to get some of these more center uh, Democrats to actually take a stance. But I also think that it was just you know, all of this community resistance, all of these letters, all of all of this escalating action, all of this news and media coverage um, that finally reached him. So I think, you know, my big takeaway lately from this work is that I think we can absolutely win Jordan Cove. Um, I think that it's going to take all of the tactics and more that we've been using. Um, but I think that with the power of this grassroots community and just from what I've seen, I think that we absolutely have a case for winning this pipeline. Um, it's just a matter of at what stage, at what stage we're going to get to. So, what happened to the 21 people who got arrested? They all had to go to jail. They all went to jail, as many as many of us activists do these days. And um, <laughs> thankfully, um, they their charges were actually dismissed. And so, um, after, after they were released on their own recognizances, just recently their charges were dismissed. And so they're not going to have to appear before court, um, and they're allowed to walk free. To demonstrate another day. Which is exciting, because we need it, absolutely. Yeah, and that's kind of where we're at right now, Jordan Hill, is we're all still kind of reeling from such a beautiful action, and, um, we're waiting for a decision from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We're waiting for what's going to happen next. Um, and meanwhile, we're really growing our numbers, and we're preparing for the next phase in resistance. So we are about out of time, uh, but I want to make sure that we have all the information we need to let people get more involved if they want to be involved. So I'm going to put links down at the bottom of the uh, podcast for how you can be involved in the Wildcat uh, timber sale monitoring, how you can get on the Cascadia Wildlands mailing list for updates on Jordan Cove, and anything else? I think that's it. The Wildcat link, definitely, and yeah, just a general mailing list. And how people can um, donate to your organization so that you can keep up this great work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, we're a staff of five, and we have a shoestring budget, um, but we managed to do a hell of a lot. I mean, we talked on this call about our work with forest defense and fossil fuel resistance, um, and there's so much more work that we do. We have a whole section of our work that's dedicated to the protection of endangered species, including the marbled muriolus and salmon and, of course, the iconic gray wolf. Um, that's a major part of our work. So... Yeah, all, all support is incredibly appreciated, and it does go directly towards materially doing something about the destruction of this bioregion and making sure that the best wildest places are protected for future generations. And we uh, really appreciate you focusing on Douglas County and the Umpqua Valley timber sales and helping us to keep informed on these and to leading us on field trips into these sales. That's so important to us down here. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite things is working with people who live in and around the places that we're working to defend and getting to know those people. So 
I would love to work more with people um, who are in the Southern Oregon, Roseburg, Douglas County area and want to get involved. Um, and so anyone should feel free to just email me directly at sam, S-A-M, at taskwild, dot org. Um, and they'll just get to me directly, and I'd love to connect. And I'll have that email address down in the description also. Awesome. So thank you. We have been talking with Samantha Crop from Cascadia Wildlands. Thank you for talking with us today, Samantha. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Was it Cesar Chavez? Maybe it was Darcy Day. Some will say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. No matter who your mentors are, it's pretty plain to see. If you've been to jail for justice, you're in good company. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down, always to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom? Or march that picket line Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine You law-abiding citizens Listen to this song Laws were made by people And people can be wrong Once unions were against the law But slavery was fine Women were denied the vote and children worked the mine. The more you study history, the less you can deny it. A rotten law stays on the books till folks with guts defy it. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down always to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom? Oh, much that picket line Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine Now the law's supposed to serve us And so are the police When that system fails It's up to us to speak our peace It takes eternal vigilance For justice to prevail So get courage from your convictions Let them haul you off to jail been to jail for justice, I want to shake your hand, sitting in and lying down, always to take a stand, have you sung a song for freedom, or marched that picket line, have you been to jail for justice, will you go to jail for justice, have you been to jail for justice, oh yeah.